0: Eyes, a podcast where we journey, we journey through the weekly Torah portion and glean parenting insights along the way. Personally, I've been on this parenting journey for the past 25 years, well, in truth, most of my life, and I'm just now on a quest to learn all I can about being the best parent I can be to my physical children, my own inner child, as well as my spiritual children, using God as the perfect template for parenting. It is my heart that my hindsight can become your insight. So let's learn together. This week we are working on Parshat Vayeshev, which is Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 through Genesis chapter 40, verse 23. We left Vayeshev last week with Jacob and his two wives, two concubines, one daughter, and 12 sons settling in the land of Canaan. Um... <clears throat> excuse me. So Vayeshev, I'm sorry, they settled in Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. So Vayeshev begins with the Torah telling us that Jacob is settling in Canaan, and he. the Torah also tells us that Jacob has a favorite child. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, you would think, I would think, that perhaps Jacob, having gone through all of that emotional turmoil with Asa would have probably tried to resist having a favorite child. That's just my hunch. Now, uh, I don't know why Jacob chooses to have a favorite child despite, look at all the stuff he just went through because his mother favored him and his father favored his twin. So I don't think that, um, I don't think the Torah is trying to sell us on having a favorite child. Just saying. (laughs) God definitely does not have a favorite child. Go ahead and write that down in bold print. Underline it. Tattoo it on your forearm if you want. But God does not have a favorite child. I don't have a favorite child. God does not have a favorite child. It's rude to have a favorite child. It causes nothing but strife and jealousy. And so... I I have a question for all of my listeners. I'm really just curious because um, my brother and I fought a lot when we were kids, too. I'm really curious how many of my listeners have struggled with sibling rivalry in their homes. And, um, and then what have you done as a parent to help work through that or overcome that in your own children so that you're not repeating those mistakes in another generation? Now, I understand that... You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So we can encourage our children to be friends. We can model respect. We can um, hold them accountable for being respectful to each other. But I don't think we can actually make them be friends. So I'm just curious. I would love to have a dialogue with other parents about this. Um, There is Substack has this new chat feature, so I'm thinking about opening that up just so we can have... Chats about audio chats about some of these different principles. Because I would love to hear your thoughts about um, what it takes to create an environment in the family where sibling rivalry is not a, um, a, a, well, where sibling rivalry is a rare occurrence instead of a daily occurrence. Let's just put it that way. I don't think, I, I don't think it's possible to keep kids from ever feeling jealous but I do think it's possible to not make it worse. So, anyway, back to the portion. Portia. 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 Parsha, Parsha, Parsha. Back to the Parsha. Um, okay, so part of me wonders if Jacob is just really still mourning Rachel. Because she was really his true love, like his soulmate. And um, and the rabbis have a lot of commentary about Leah was actually supposed to be on a soul level. Um set aside for Esau but because of the different life path that he took that ended up not being Hashem's plan for Leah and Esau um, but she was supposed to be part of the sons of Jacob if that makes sense or part of the family of Jacob I should say so my point is that um, Rachel really was the one who was designed to be the exact soulmate for Isaac or for Jacob and uh, Leah for Esau and so I do think that he just um He just feels like a piece of him is missing, and he sees little hints maybe of that in Joseph. And so I don't know if he is picking a favorite to hurt the other boys. I think it's more of a I miss his mother kind of thing. So anyway, that's enough apologetics. Either way, it's very, very destructive to the family relationships, especially between the trust that Jacob's sons have and with Joseph. And with Jacob, really, um, they kind of feel like, I suppose they probably feel like um, hired hands eventually. You know, uh, and that, that reminds me, I, I do share sometimes a lot of painful and difficult things that my mom went through. But, you know, the, the baby boomer generation was basically raised at the, at the tail of the Industrial Revolution. And I have a lot of sympathy or empathy, compassion for where they come from because they really did get a message that, like, unless you're working, you're purposeless. And, um, and I really want, I think that this generation that we're raising now, I think that they are carrying inside of them an innate understanding that their soul has value, uh, irregardless of what they do or don't do in this lifetime, that there's just because they exist, they have value, So, um, I mean, that's true. Like the trees, it's kind of like, look at how we used to treat the trees. Like, unless you can make paper for some or do something useful for us, you know, that's kind of how we used to treat the trees, right? And now we're saying, no, every tree has inherent value. It's standing there being beautiful. That makes it valuable, right? It also is making oxygen and you know, just getting rid of greenhouse gases and cooling off the earth. So like, um, it's value isn't in just what it can do for us, but it's value is in its existence. So, uh, that's really kind of my heart with some of this parenting too. That's what I'm, that's what I get from Hashem when I read this is that like every soul has value. He even lists the people that, um, that don't seem to be major players by name. So, um. Everyone has inherent value in this story. So, okay, so Jacob, I'm not sure why, but then Jacob decides to, again, this guy doesn't, he kind of learns everything the hard way. I'm wondering if he's a line three profile where he has to really just experiment with trial and error quite a bit. And so Jacob sends the child that nobody likes to go check on his brothers and come back and tattletale on them. Now, I don't know. I've, I'm have i not an expert in parenting, but do you think that's a good idea? I don't think that's a good idea. I feel like that's going to cause a problem. <laughs> My older boys hate it when their little brother tattletails on them. Um, they just hate it, so I'm not going to send him to go check on them. I need to go myself. I often send one of the older kids to check on the younger, but not the other way around. So I'm really curious why Jacob... I'd like to have coffee with Jacob and ask him why he did that. And this is where the murderous plot begins in the second Aliyah of this Parsha. So, um, which eventually is diverted by Reuben and Judah. And I wanted to also, I also noticed this time reading this week's Parsha that um, this story is about Joseph, but there is a subplot that we could title How Judah Rose Up as a Leader in Israel. (laughs) Because really we see Judah making some mistakes, but learning from them and kind of coming forward and leading differently because of his mistakes. So in the third Aaliyah, of course, Joseph is then sold into slavery and arrives at the home of Potiphar. Um, in the fourth Aaliyah, we take a break from the Joseph story to, to flesh out this um, subplot about Judah and Tamar. And maybe you uh, maybe you didn't notice this, but the, the children from the Tamar story end up becoming um, great-grandparents of King David. So that's part of why the story ends up taking a detour here to tell you about that. Um, Also, then in Aaliyah 5, Joseph is showing his leadership potential and a lot of integrity. So Potiphar places him in charge of his whole house. So uh, that also led me to a parenting question this week. How are we teaching stewardship to our children? And it's something I'm—I I really just want you to know, like i i am not thinking of anyone else but my own family this week, and how somewhere along the way I forgot to—I've um, been, my kids have had a job babysitting their, um, their, their their cousins' dog when they're out of town or whatever. And when they get paid for doing that, which I think is beautiful because then they're learning work ethic and they're learning responsibility and they're getting paid to do a good job. So they're learning stewardship. But somewhere along the line, I forgot to teach them to give charity out of their payments and also to save money. And I mean, so they just put the whole thing in savings and then they spend it whenever they want to. Now, that's not exactly stewardship. And so this week, we had a talk about stewarding their finances differently and we started off the conversation saying whose money is it is it your money or is it god's money money is just energy really and there's plenty of it we're like swimming in an ocean of it right some of us are holding on to more of it than others but the right idea really is to have it flow in and out of our lives and we can divert that money or that energy to things I mean to things that are to our whatever our values are. Of course paying the electric bill and paying our mortgage, but also um causes that we believe in or acts of charity, Zadaka, where we could bless someone else who doesn't have who isn't holding as much of that energy in their possession as other people. So anyway, what I the reason I'm bringing that up here is because we really see a contrast between Levon a couple parsha ago saying, hey all of the, Everything you see is mine. All of these kids, all of these grandkids, my, these daughters, my grandkids, all of these sheep, all of these goats. And the only reason you have anything is because I'm here, which is a huge ego statement. Compare, now let's contrast that to Joseph who's saying none of it is mine and um, all of it is God's and God is, has chosen to bless Potiphar with it. Potiphar gets to hold on to a bigger piece of it than I, he, than Joseph does. Joseph has nothing. And so he is taking care of everything that he touches as if it belongs to someone else. Now, uh, and my husband and I had a nice conversation yesterday about, like, that's how I feel about our kids, too. They're not our kids, like Levon said. They are God's kids that we are stewarding and guiding for a small season of their lives And then they're, I mean, but they're really ultimately God's kids. They're going to leave our home and answer to God, not to uh, us, about the choices that they're making. And we just get this little season to be an influence. And we, you know, the hardest part for me about that is that they, they often learn more from how I behave and how I talk and what I do than they do, uh, like how I talk to other people in front of them. Um, rather than the lectures or the things I'm telling them. When I try to teach them something, you know, it does work too, but it's not always the same impact, you know, as um, some of the things that I do by example. And that could be, you know, part of my own energetic makeup. And we'll talk about, because I'm a six-line profile, and we're going to talk about six-line profiles in a little bit. Six-line profiles tend to lead by example, um, more so than maybe other pro- other line profiles in the human design system. And by the way, if you haven't heard me say this before, I wanted to tell you that if there is a human design, then there inherently must be a designer. And so if you've never heard this before, I want you to know that you are a once-in-a-lifetime cosmic experience. That's a quote from Karen Curry Parker. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the creator of the universe, for this particular time in this particular season, for for whatever it is that he, that the experience that life circumstances calls you to do or be in this experience, those circumstances are God's way of remaining anonymous and guiding you. So, and you are very deeply loved and cherished. So, okay. So back to the parsha. <laughs> Sorry about that random uh, tangent about stewardship. Um, okay, so like Sixth Leah, like Joseph's living high on the hog now, right? Everything that, that Potiphar has, he's entrusting to Joseph. Joseph, his light is shining so bright that guess what happens next? A bunch of gnats. And flies and mosquitoes just get, like, drawn to his light and smack him in the window, you know. <laughs> that's a proverbial window. But that's what happens when our light's shining. We not only attract the people that are supposed to be in our lives, but we tend to attract a lot of people that aren't supposed to be there. So this the the season, when you start to shine, when I start to shine, is a really big test of my discernment, usually. So... Anyway, one of the proverbial gnats that smashes into Joseph's window in the sixth Aaliyah is Potiphar's wife, who apparently isn't very content in her own marriage, and I'll leave that for uh, another time for you in case you're listening to this in front of the kids. So then the seventh Aaliyah rounds us off with Joseph um, in the strength of God, translating God's messages through dreams to Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's butler, and he translates them accurately. And when they get released from prison, he asks them not... Well, when the one gets released from prison and stays alive, he asks them not to forget him, but they do. So that's the end of our Parsha this week. Um, I'm just going to quickly round off our our 15 minutes. We're a little over time. Uh, it's probably going to end up being like an 18-minute episode. Um, But if you will bear with me, if you would like to hear this, Joseph really does have three distinct seasons of his life. So he's got this first season, the trial and error phase. But then he kind of like grows up. And the second phase is where he's called like on the roof. That's what traditional human design calls it. Um, And then there's a third phase where he's called out to be the leader of Egypt, which we'll see in next week's Parsha. And he saves not only all of the Egyptians, but most of the region of Canaan as well from starvation, including his own family. So I can't really help but see these really strong themes of the six-line profile in this week's story. I'm sorry, I might be over-identifying with Joseph a little bit, but you probably know at least one person besides me with a six-line profile. So they usually start out life with a season of trial and error, and then they like magically wake up one morning and just stop doing that. And um, the second season of their life, like I said, is called their time on the roof. I don't like calling it on the roof because I don't know what you're supposed to do on the roof. I mean, people jump off roofs. I don't like being on the roof. I don't know what that means. It's very ambiguous. I don't get it. But what I like to compare it to is this chrysalis season of the life cycle of a butterfly, which, by the way, is my favorite animal of all time. My very first tattoo was of a butterfly at 18, and back then, I absolutely had no idea how meaningful and symbolic they would become to me. So, this chrysalis season of the six-line profile feels really confusing and actually kind of constricting, I would think. At least that's how I experience it. Other six-line profiles have told me it feels constricting. It feels like every time you try to fly, you like bump into some restriction that won't let you out. You know. So, but it is a time when we have to spend um, conscious time digesting, like really digesting all of the embodied experiences from the first season. The butterfly during this chrysalis literally dissolves its entire body all of the stored wisdom and experience in their flesh into a liquid and then grows wings out of them. Okay, that's pretty cool. And the third season of the life cycle of a butterfly, of course, is being able to fly above circumstances to get a higher vision and use that embodied wisdom of the first two seasons to lead by example. So parenting children with a six-line profile requires a lot of patience a lot of patience, and a dash more of patience. But believe me, it does get better. So that's all I have to say. I'm right at 18 minutes. I just want to thank you for tuning in with me until next time. By the way, if you are not sure if your child or if you, in fact, are a 6 Line Profile, I would encourage you to go to the show notes and go go ahead and download a free copy of your human design chart. And if you have any questions about that chart at all, please send me an email. I don't really like doing this group talk stuff. You know, I'm, I'm only doing this podcast so you can hear my voice and hear how passionately in love with all of creation I am, including you, and how um, I just... I just want people to see the beauty of who they are and just be happy with themselves, you know, like this joy that comes from just being embodied in their own experience and knowing that God's got this, man. So anyway, that's what I'm here for. Um, But my point in saying that is that I really do better with one-on-one conversations. So if you don't want to comment in the comment section of the Substack article or whatever, if you don't want to do the group chat thing, that's cool with me. You're always welcome to send me just an email, and I will be happy to respond to you. Um, I do still have a a couple of openings for human design readings. um, Before the end of the year, they would make a great gift if you have an adult child that you'd like to get a reading with or a partner. Um, I do parenting chart. I do charts on children also, but I usually sit with the parent to discuss that. Um, but when, when I do parenting charts, I do a two for one. So you get to buy one reading and get the child's chart where well, you buy the child's reading and you get the, your chart read for free. So, um, or you can just get your own chart read. And, um, again, it, this is, <laughs> it's, it sounds woo woo, but really it's just a love letter from the divine. And I would be honored to help translate that love letter into a language you can understand. So, and also I, uh, you know. I am fascinated with it. So if you if nothing else, you'll be entertaining me. So anyway, may the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob bless you with clear communication this week as well as health, peace, and abundance. I hope that the flow of the energy, the, the big ocean of, of money, energy flows into your life and back out into the places that align with your values. I hope that you have a consistent flow and that your needs are met. And that the needs of the people around you are met through you. I And I hope that you are blessed abundantly. Shalom.